once again in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 4. We'll be beginning in James chapter 4, verse 11, and going through to chapter 5 and verse 6. Three sort of distinct sections, but can all be connected by a common theme. Uh, we lo- looked last time, beginning of James chapter 4, he was talking about conflicts in the church, conflicts that arise from our own passions warring uh, within us and around us. And the call was to a sort of humility, to submit to God, to humble ourselves before God, to draw near to God and to repent of our sin. So coming out of that, we read in James four eleven. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet... You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters, have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, please give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see, hearts to understand, and the will to respond to you appropriately and humbly as we seek to come under um, the rule of your word, the rule of Christ. In his name, amen. From the very start of humanity, it's been the constant temptation uh, to compete with God, to seek to usurp God's rightful position. Uh, The first temptation to Eve and to Adam was to basically compete with God and having God-like knowledge taken on their own terms. God intended intended to teach them good and evil, to grow them, but they wanted to take and grasp at God-likeness on their own terms. This sense we have of autonomy, that we want to be a law unto ourselves, that we want to control and run our own lives, is a core human sin. And it fights against the essential fact of our existence, which is this. God is God, and you are not. That's an essential fact that many people fail to grasp. God is God, and you are not. And yet so often, we 
implicitly or sometimes explicitly, we want to be God. We want God's prerogatives to be our prerogatives. We want his throne. We want his seat. Isn't that uh, the, the, the motive of most villains, whether uh, in Shakespeare or in Disney movies, right? The villain wants to take the king and ruler's place for themselves, that they would have that power, and it usually leads them to some sort of murder or treacherous activity, right? You can think of Scar killing Mufasa. You can think of Yzma killing Cusco. Whatever it is, the villain is always trying to get the throne for themselves. And in many ways, we will do many things to put ourselves on the throne instead of God. We usurp God's positions and insert ourselves into positions God only holds. And James is giving us a few different examples in our text tonight of ways in which we have misunderstood God's place versus our place. Different ways of really understanding that God is God and I am not God. Let's consider the first, uh, looking at verse 11 with me, and let's learn that God is judge and you are not. James starts off saying, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So again, he's coming to this speech thing. He talked about speech in chapter 1. He talked about speech in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, 9, we remember he's talking about the poisonous tongue and saying that our tongue both blesses our Lord and Father, and then we use our tongue to curse people made in God's likeness. And we talked about this cursing of people is disparaging, demeaning, and dismissive speech against God's image bearers. And James has then moved to talking about the conflicts that erupt uh, often from the spark of the tongue. But he returns again to the tongue, and we're reminded that when there are conflicts in the church and elsewhere, usually what happens is people start speaking slanderously and maliciously against one another. So we constantly need to be reminded to not speak evil against others. We need to be people of peace controlling our speech. And he's saying, if we are going to be speaking disparagingly, demeaningly, or dismissively of others, uh, it's dangerous. Because here's what he says happened. Look at the text again. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. He's saying, you think you're speaking against this person, but you're actually speaking against God's law. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, the religious people... This would have been terrible to them. They say, we would never speak against the law of Moses. We would never speak against the law of God. But James is saying, here's how you're doing that. God's law commands you to love your neighbor, right? To care about your neighbor's good name. But in taking it to yourself to demean them, to dismiss them, to tear them down, you are going against the law of neighbor love, which means one of two things. It means either you think that God's law is wrong, it's not a very good law, not one that should be submitted to, or maybe two, you think, well, that's a good law for other people, but not for me. I don't need to keep that. In either case, these people are therefore putting themselves above the law of God, saying, this law, I have no need for it. I'm above it. I will set the laws and I will condemn and judge people based on my assessment of them. I don't need to obey God and his laws. They maybe don't think that, but that's what they are doing in their actions. They're putting themselves in the place of God, forgetting that God is the lawgiver and the judge. And so he continues in verse 11, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That's a good thing for us to hear. Who are you to judge your neighbor? That is, who do you think you are? Who do you really think you are? You really think that it's your right to be the judge of others, to be the one whose will and whose laws they, everyone needs to submit to and walk around. And, and if your family doesn't keep your laws of will just right, you can respond with anger and cast your judgments on others. God is the judge. You are not. We often want to take God's place of judgment to ourselves. Now, we're not talking here about the right exercise of justice by lawful authorities. No, the context here is an interpersonal dispute where people are then going to this disparaging speech, this slander speech to get ahead, to rise above in the conflict. We're talking about an interpersonal conflict here. And speaking demeaningly, dismissively, and disparagingly about others is rendering a false judgment against them as image bearers of God. And the judgment, however you slice it, it ends up being something like, they are not worth as much. This person is worthless in some way or other. And it's judging them to be worthless when in fact they are an image bearer of God and so precious and highly valuable. Who put you in the place of God? God is judge and you are not. And James is writing to expose this God-usurping arrogance that seeks to place the self in the place of the judge's seat, when God is the only one that has the right to sit on the judge's seat. This is an example of the godless pride that was found in the church manifesting itself in their interpersonal relationships. But James, on, James moves on to point out how this sort of arrogance and pride can manifest itself in another way. Look at verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. I first just love that it says, Go to such and such a town. I got just a great way of speaking. Tomorrow, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make profit. So James is talking about uh, the plans that these merchants are making. And in, this, in most ancient times, most people are in agriculture, right? They're farmers. Uh, but some people were merchants. And the merchants were generally those who were more desirous of accumulating wealth. Often people didn't even use money. They traded goods. But the merchants were the ones that made money a big priority. This, this commodity of trade and were going around. And mainly, people that were merchants were people that had a really strong incentive to seek wealth. That's what these merchants were. And so... It seems like there was a pride in these merchants um, who are really proud that they've left, you know, I've left this common farming behind like all of you guys. I get to go around, I'll go to Corinth, I'll go to Thessalonica, I'm going to trade and I'm going to make a profit. James is speaking to these merchants largely, and these are ones who are confident in their own ability to ensure their future success. That is, they have a strategic business plan, and they're confident in their ability to execute it to perfection. Now, the issue here is not that they were making plans or being strategic in their careers, but that it was reflecting a planning that um, resulted in a, or came from a self-confidence and a self-conceit apart from a trust and resignation 
and contentment with the will of God. And by extension, I think we rightly apply this to all sorts of self-confident planning. We can think of that sort of self-confidence that says, I will plan my family exactly this way. We'll have exactly this many kids at exactly this time, and that is exactly how my life will play out. I'll get married at this year. I'll be a grandparent by this year. Um, we used to listen to this one speaker back in the day, but this person was confident that he had a 200-year plan for his family that was going to happen, when his grandkids would be born, when his great-grandkids would be born. And uh, about 10 years after he first gave this speech about his 200-year plan, uh, he was re reflecting that you know his daughters are still in their early 30s, they're not married, so it's kind of thrown off his 200-year plan. Yeah, go figure, you know? But this confident planning in this is how my life is going to go. Um, some have confidently planned, planned their career path. This is how my career path will go. I will get a promotion at this point. Um, or your business life. I will grow my business to this extent. I will sell it at a profit. Then I'll start a new venture and do this and that. Or I'll plan my retirement. I'll retire at age 57. I'll have enough to live in this sort of cottage every winter. I'll be able to do this and that. And that is how my life will go. Our society celebrates and encourages this sort of self-confidence. Uh, I was listening to a podcast recently where this um, pastor was talking about just this big trend he really noticed among college students in the UK. And really, this isn't um, just in the UK, it's everywhere. And you can see this especially, um, people talking about this on TikTok videos and stuff all the time. But it's this idea of manifesting. Okay, you may not have heard about this. This is a big thing for college students, that they will manifest their ideal college. They will manifest their ideal degree and achieve it. Now, you might re remember, this is actually just a reiteration of something that was popular like 20 years ago. If you ever watched Oprah, there was like this law of attraction business that if you visualize things and really want them, the universe will just give them to you. But it's an expression of this utter self-confidence that I can have what I want, not necessarily even by working hard, but by thinking hard and visualizing, I will manifest my own destiny because I am in control of my destiny and no one else. And what does James say to that? This sort of self-confident control of the future. He says in verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. How much control do you really have over the future? Do you know what could happen tomorrow? Tomorrow, cancer cells could start growing in your body. An oncoming car could swerve into you. Our nation could be attacked or invaded or any other such host of things. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And at some point in life, most people experience a fundamental sense of the loss of control. You think you're planning your life and leading your life only to realize that it feels a lot more like your life was just leading you and pulling you along for the ride. And that's why this same speaker talking about these confident college kids said that after a couple years, many of them have turned to despair and nihilism because they've realized they can't manifest their own destiny. They then realize, maybe I don't have control over my future, and they almost give up. They turn to various forms of despair. The loss of control can be jarring for many, to recognize that you actually have very little control over what could happen in the future. James says, 
what is your life? Another good question, isn't it? What is your life? You're a mist that appears and then vanishes. So in the big scheme of things, how important do you really think you are? Really, though, think about that. How important do you really think you are? Your life is fleeting. It's small. Your life is so small on a cosmic scale. I saw this infographic recently uh, that was trying to visualize how many people have ever lived. Okay, so I'm going to need you to really try to imagine this uh, graphic with me. I would have put it up on the screen, but some of you would have had a problem with that. Uh, but so imagine an, an hourglass with a bunch of grains of sand in it, right? You know how the sand goes through the, through the sand timer? Maybe you've used one in a board game. And every grain of sand in this visualization is 10 million people, okay? Think, 10 million people. That's a lot of people. Every grain of sand is 10 million people. Now, every year, 14 new grains of sand fall into this timer. 140 million new people. Our daughter was born this year. She was one ten millionth of one of those grains of sand that fell into the timer of this world this year. This same year, six grains of sand will drop out of the timer. 60 million people will die. Twice the population of Canada. Six grains of sand left. You might have known someone who died, sadly, this year. They were one ten millionth of one of those grains of sand. But if you look in the bottom of that hourglass, how many grains of sand have already passed beyond the ones alive right now? Right? There's almost 8 billion people in this world. How many grains of sand have already passed through the hourglass? About 10,000. The, the one 10 millionth, our daughter, that has affected my life so much, one 10 millionth of one grain of sand, there's been 10,000 grains of sand that have already gone on. What is your life? Your life is so much smaller than you even know. And so how could you be proud about your future plans, the money you're going to make, the things you're going to accomplish? Do you not see how silly it all seems? And that's why James says in verse 16, he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. The truth that needs to be remembered here is that God is sovereign and you are not. God is the one who reigns and is in control, and you are not. And to act otherwise is both boastful and arrogant. This is the arrogance of the self-made man, the one who has pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, who has accomplished what they set their heart on and made something of themselves. And how quick we are to congratulate ourselves on our small, small successes and accomplishments. But we know we need to plan for the future, and so how ought we properly relate to the future ahead of us without this arrogant presumption of control? Well, James tells us in verse 15, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. That is, we can make plans, but know that they're under the scope of God's sovereignty. As Proverbs 16.9 says, that the heart of man does plan his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so we make plans, but open-handedly resign ourselves to the will of God in it. We don't have a tight-fisted hold on our future, but we seek the best with our hands open to God's will. 
we reflect Jesus' practice, where we do bring God our desires for our future, what we want like Christ did, if, if it be your will, let this cup pass, but then we resign ourselves to God's will, saying, yet not what I will, but what you will. We want God's future to unfold, not our own. God is sovereign and you are not. That's something we do well to remember, that we not seek to usurp God's place as the one who holds the future. We don't hold it. God does. The antidote in verse 15 is to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Now, this statement, um, if the Lord wills or God willing, it's not, it's not magical. It's, we're not superstitious about that, that if you say that when you talk about a future plan, all of a sudden it's good. No, that's not the point. The point is that it's reflecting an attitude of the heart that whether it's verbalized or not, our disposition towards everything we speak about with the future is that this is all contingent on the will of God. This is all underneath God's sovereign plans and purposes. Um, commentator Douglas Moo says that this should be a fixed perspective from which to view all of life. I really like that. This, this idea of if the Lord wills is a fixed perspective from which to view all of life. It's what we pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, I did say we don't have to say this out loud, but I think it's often good to say this out loud. Um, it's a really good reminder for us just to even verbally hear ourselves saying, if the Lord wills, I'll do this or that. Um, I remember this would happen a lot for me about uh, a year ago when people were constantly asking, hey, what, when are you going to graduate from seminary? And I would usually say, oh, this may, Lord willing. But even whenever I said that, um, I was just reminded, like, hmm, I guess if I'm saying I will graduate in May, God willing, that I guess I maybe could, there's many possibilities where I don't graduate in May. Maybe I get sick and have to quit school. Maybe uh, I was missing a course that I didn't know about. Uh, maybe I get expelled for some reason. There could have been many reasons why I wouldn't have graduated in five months' time. And so that can be just a helpful reminder to us of just how little control we have over the future. Hey, God willing, we're going to go to this place on vacation this summer. God willing, I'm going to get that job I applied for. God willing, we're going to have a baby in seven months. Because we know that God is the one in control, not us. James concludes in verse 17 saying, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This seems perhaps a jarring verse that doesn't necessarily connect. But I think if you think about it, he's basically saying, I've told you now a way you ought to speak and live, right? To be saying, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. He says, now you know, so I expect you to be doing that. So if you know that you need to speak about your future with reference to the will of God, to not do that now is sin. But we can broaden that to say, yes, anytime you know the right thing to do and don't do it, it's sin. We talk about that, those as a sins of omission, Sins that are us failing to do what we're supposed to do. And it's just helpful as an aside for us to remember that sins of omission exist, right? We often get so focused on the sins that we're struggling committing that we forget that there's a lot more we're omitting. And I don't know if anyone ever had this sort of thought, but if you've ever had one particular sin that, that was really prominent in your life, and you had this thought of like, man, if I could just master this sin, would I even have any sins left? Um, I remember thinking this when I was a young man and just the struggling with the lusts of the flesh, thinking, 
if I didn't struggle with these lusts, I don't even know what other sins I'd have to work on. But that's because we're just thinking about the sins of commission. The way, not to mention the ways we're failing to love God, failing to love our neighbor and do good and justice. To the one who knows the good and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Which just, does that not just even more so cast us on the mercy of God, right? Make us have to hope in Christ. Now, these two warnings James has given, um, assigning judgment to ourselves and our place instead of God, attributing sovereignty to ourselves and not to God, these are directed to um, the people in the church to which he's writing. Now, in this last section, James is particularly writing to wealthy people outside of the church. And there is no implicit call to repentance in this next passage. This next passage takes on a denunciatory tone that's fairly reflective of the ancient prophets. He's speaking a word of judgment to those outside of the church, those outside the church who were oppressing some of those in the church. Take a look at James 5, verse 1. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Weep and howl for the coming miseries. So the, these rich people, like the ones we just heard of, they think their future's bright and rosy, but little do they know. Little do they know what their future end will be. And he writes in verse 2 here, of, of their future end as if it was already present, saying, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. He's saying, what's happening to your wealth when your body's lying in the grave? All your rich and fancy clothes will be getting eaten by moths. Your wealth, it'll be rusting or it'll be given away to others. Why are you amassing such treasures? And this um, laying up of treasure in the last days, or as one translation says, you've selfishly hoarded wealth in these last days, it's a testimony against them at the judgment. It's a testimony that their love was wealth and not Jesus. These, this wealth, it is testifying against them. Remember what Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is going to be. The treasure is a reflection of where the heart is at. Do you remember when Jesus also told that parable about the man who had so much stuff he couldn't fit it in his house and shed anymore? So he said, I should tear down my barns and I should build bigger barns so that I can have more stuff. And Jesus said that this man was a fool. That very night he would die and face the judgment of God. And what good is that giant barn full of stuff then? He says also in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve God in money. You can't have two masters, God or money, not both. The hoarding of treasure reveals that the riches and wealth are their true gods. And so from this godless, this proud accumulation mindset, because they just want, it leads them to doing injustice towards others. They want what they want and will get it by any means necessary. So look at verse 4. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So in this day, there was a few wealthy landowners who were accumulating all the property, 
All the property was owned by a few people, and therefore the agricultural workers, they had to hire themselves out to these few landowners because that was the only work they had. They needed to get enough to subsist, to have their families eat. And therefore, they were at the mercy of these wealthy landowners, such that if the wealthy landowners withheld their wages even for one day, they wouldn't have enough to buy food to eat. This was subsistence-level existence. And therefore, because they had all the power, these landowners couldn't be resisted. No one could stop them from withholding the wages because everyone was in need for what they could provide. Therefore, they abused their power and oppressed their workers. And in doing so, they were breaking God's law. Uh, you, you might remember Deuteronomy 24.15, where God explicitly prohibits this action. He says, You shall give the worker his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. These people thought they could get away with it, but God heard the cries of these poor oppressed Christians, just as God heard the cries of the enslaved people of God in Egypt. God heard the cry of the oppressed, and God listened. So he says again to these wealthy oppressors, verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And doesn't this describe our day? Luxury and self-indulgence. It's been said that we live in the decadent society. Um, luxury and self-indulgence. And, uh, you know, I was thinking earlier today, isn't it true that in many ways our pets probably have it better than people did a couple hundred years ago? Uh, the medical treatments we give to them, the never wanting for food, they always have enough. Uh, our pets have more luxury often than people did in the past. Truly, we are in a day of luxury and self-indulgence. And self-indulgence here is a key word. Self-indulgence implies the neglect of others. It implies the hoarding to the self to the want and worsening of others and to the neglect of God and our duties to him as well. He says, you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That is, you've lived unaware of what the end of this selfish indulgence would be. He's saying this is like unto an animal that is unknowingly being fattened up just to be slaughtered. Um, I, I don't know how many of you guys have seen that masterpiece film, Babe, about the pig that becomes a sheepdog. It was one of my dad's favorites. But some of the animals got wise to this, that they could be fattened up for the slaughter. Ferdinand the duck, he, he said that most ducks prefer to forget it, but the fact is that humans like to eat plump ducks. But most ducks prefer to forget it. And so he's trying to warn Babe, he says, don't let them fatten you up for Christmas dinner. And they're trying to decide, should they eat the pork or should they eat the duck à l'orange? And just as these animals wouldn't want to be being fattened up for the slaughter, many people live like these ducks. They prefer to forget it. What will the end of their self-indulgence, fattening of their bank accounts be? But it's going to be destruction. They'll be fattening themselves up in a day of slaughter. And most don't want to think about what the end of their amassing of wealth will be after they die. How they will have to give an account to God for how they dealt with the, all the resources he had given to them. And this godless 
accumulation manifests itself further, and perhaps worse in verse 6. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And this doesn't necessarily mean that they had physically murdered people, but that their starvation of them, their withholding of wages from them, was leading to their death. Just as David was charged with murder for orchestrating the circumstances that led um, to Uriah's death, so these people are charged with the murder in the circumstances that led to the death of the poor. And he says, uh, they don't resist you. That is, you people have gotten rid of all that stood in your way. You've lobbied your way to the detriment of the common man. You've quieted the whistleblower. You've forced the signing of non-disclosure agreements on those you've abused and oppressed. And the poor righteous here are just helpless victims. They don't resist because they have no means of resistance. They had no power. They were at the mercy of these wealthy ones. And these people didn't understand that in God's sight, they truly weren't rich. God is rich, and they are not. The riches they think they have are just things that fade away. They ought to have looked to God for the true riches, the rich of soul, the feast of fat things and wine on the lees that would truly satisfy their heart and, what, and in that find what they would truly be looking for. And therefore, because they have not sought satisfaction in God, there's only a judgment that's remaining for these people. It's a judgment on the godless that James is telling the church. Now we hear this too, and why would, have, why would James have needed to tell the Christians about the judgment coming on their oppressors? And what perhaps can we learn from this as well? Well, I think there's a few reasons how we can learn from this judgment on this godless rich. It's first that they might learn not to envy the worldly wealthy, right? We sometimes look with envy like Asaph in Psalm 73. Man, those rich people look like they're doing really great. But we need to remember like Asaph that truly God sets them in slippery places. Their God is their belly. Their end is destruction. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Don't envy the worldly wealthy. Second, that they might learn not to be like the worldly wealthy, don't learn the ways of the Gentiles. Don't learn that, um, don't ever think that profit is more important than people. People are more important than profits. And those who have power over workers, uh, the owners and the managers, they will give an account to God for how justly or unjustly they treated them whether they treated their workers the way they would want to be treated, whether they loved their neighbors as themselves, or whether they treated their workers like inhuman machines, like means to an ultimate end of profit. Don't learn the ways of the Gentiles. Don't learn the economics of the Gentiles. Let God teach you the economic principles of his kingdom. Third, that the poor and oppressed Christians here, they could learn to have a calm composure in the face of their suffering, knowing that God will justly judge the wicked and justly recompense the righteous who suffer at their hands. And yes, they can and should work for justice, but they need not do so uh, frantically or in the ways of this world taking up the sword, but they can, like Jesus, Peter says, entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing good while seeking good. And so in all these different ways, as we've seen, James is showing us what it looks like to try to usurp God's position, 
to be judge ourselves, to be sovereign, to have worldly wealth ourselves. And in all these ways, they're usurping God's rightful rule. But to the humble, to the one who acknowledges God's rule, God's law, God's sovereignty over life and history, God's ownership of all things, to the one who recognizes uh, their stewardship, their call to love others, these find the mercy of God, and they can take comfort even in the midst of their suffering. And how can us as Christians find this sort of comfort even in the midst of uh, disillusionment, in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of even poverty and suffering? Well, the reason we can take comfort is because we know that there was once a poor man, a homeless man, who was unjustly judged, unjustly accused, and unjustly put to death by rich and powerful special interest groups, ones that worried Um, that were worried that he would cause them to lose their wealth, to lose their status, and to lose their power in society. Greed even led to his death. This man's close friend betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. Jesus prayed that the cup would pass from him, but entrusted himself to the will of his heavenly Father, saying, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus didn't come to amass wealth, but he gave up his heavenly riches, making himself poor so that he might make the poor truly spiritually rich. Jesus didn't come to judge, but to save. He came for sinners. And therefore, we can look to the one who's gone before us as an example of patience in suffering. However, we don't just look to Christ as our suffering servant, but also the risen reigning king. We can trust that our king will provide for us according to his riches and glory, for he is utterly trustworthy. And so we don't need to tear others down to try to lift ourselves up and claw claw whatever power we can get because we're already seated in heavenly places. We don't need to fight for control of our future to enact and manifest our destiny because we are held by the one who holds the future. We don't need to greedily try to amass wealth in this world because we already have the true riches that will never spoil or fade away. And so if you're a Christian, you can't lose. You can't lose because all God's promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we tonight and this week can remember and rest in the reality that God is judge and you are not. That God is sovereign, and you are not. That God is rich, and only in him can you also be truly rich. Let's remember these things, and let God be God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your all-sufficiency. We thank you for the wealth that we have in Jesus. The wealth of the love of God of hope beyond the grave, of the Holy Spirit's indwelling, of peace through Jesus. We ask that the treasure that is Christ would be more to us than all the treasures of this world, that we would trust your goodness and kindness so thoroughly that we would not fear for our future, but trust you and seek to faithfully walk in your ways. We ask for tongues that refrain from speaking evil of others, and seek to encourage and to build up. Lord, help us be more like Jesus, 
and help us to trust in our Jesus. We pray these things knowing you hear us for his sake. Amen.